Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwide Municipal. Joining me today is an all-star lineup, everyone. We have Greg Clark, our head of municipal research. Mary Ellen Ty, our assistant editor. Caitlin Devitt, our senior reporter based in Chicago. We also have Andrew Cosentino, our podcast producer extraordinaire. But most importantly, we have a very special guest, John Burke, a.k.a. J.B., 13 years at Acuris, was a part of the Dead Wire family, decided to move over. Now he's the editor at Information. JB, tell, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and, and why are you here participating in our podcast, by the way? Well, thanks for having me, Paul, a.k.a. Professor. Um, it's great to be here. Information is a uh, real-time news service that globally covers, uh, basically, as the name implies, infrastructure uh, worldwide. Um, it involves P3 projects. It involves um, power plants and how they're built and how they're constructed, you know, from financing to close. And often, as uh, municipals have seen over the years, there's been an intersection between what we do and what Dewari Municipal does. Um, I started this uh, new position in January, and I knew a storm was coming because we knew an infrastructure bill was about to get announced. And lo and behold, it was on Monday, and I'm here to talk all about it. So for everyone listening, we are recording on Thursday afternoon, February 15th, around 2 o'clock. So just have a sense of that. JB, obviously on Monday, President Trump came out with his infrastructure proposal. What were some of the highlights, some of the pros and cons that you saw? Well... I guess uh, this website, Axiom, had gotten leaked details a couple of weeks back. And so I think the general numbers were consistent. Um, but there was some specifics that came out, which actually proved to be a good thing for the infrastructure world in general in the U.S. Um, but let's go over the broad strokes. It's $1.5 trillion. Uh, approximately 20% is going to be funded by the federal government. And the other 80% is going to be funded by everyone else with the implication that the sheer billions of dollars being raised by private infrastructure funds and public infrastructure funds would make up the gap. And then um, states, uh, municipalities, and counties sometimes would also be involved in that process, obviously. When you get into the specifics, though, it gets kind of interesting, um, especially for readers of information, because it answered a lot of things that I think had surfaced as problems in how P3 projects are done in this country, which is not very efficiently. It called for the expansion, for instance, of private activity bonds, um, and a proposal been made in Congress recently to expand the cap up to $20 billion from its uh, current levels of $15 billion. Um, it expanded uh, the TIFIA Act um, to allow for waterways, ports, and airports to be included uh, in that program. Um, also, it expanded the definition of the WIFIA Act, which was um, addresses water projects and would allow assets like desalinization plants to be included under the expanded definition of uh, WIFIA. And the problem in, in, in all of this is that it puts a lot of the burden still on states and cities to find a way to say, well, how are we going to pay for this? 
There's no doubt in, in anyone's minds that the infrastructure funds are ready, are ready to put money to work. If you read some of our global editions, you'll see projects being done uh, hand over foot in Latin America right now, in uh, outlier countries like, like Chile and Uruguay and uh, Argentina, as well as Mexico and Brazil, as you'd expect. Over in European countries as well, just generally lots of projects being done on that end of things. Um, here, just not so much. A lot of um, politics seems to get involved in the way of things. There's an initiative. There's thought. Proposals come out left and right. Uh, currently, um, if you go to read it through Infra's pages, you'll see proposals for just about everything, for broadband. Um, in Michigan, there's an ongoing social laboratories proposal on the table. Um, there's, uh, you know, housing, which comes up, campus housing that comes up as well at times. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, portions of highways that are still come up. But a lot of these projects just have a lot of trouble coming to close. And that's because of politics and people finding different ways to be annoyed with the project. And I'm not sure that the funding bill, the infrastructure bill answers these questions today because, again, it still puts a high degree of burden on states and on cities uh, because at the end of the day, a project gets privatized and cities and states have to find a way to fund their payment to said private entity in whatever form it takes. Um, and so to give you a perfect example, the bill um, singles out uh, five transmission plants, uh, sorry, four transmission plants across the country, big ones, Tennessee Valley Authority, Bonville Power Authority, and two others representing 30% of this country's transmission capacity. In an auction for these assets, uh, flying off the shelf like hotcakes, Paul. Big multiples, big money. There's that group called the Blackstone Group. You may have heard of them. They raised the $40 billion fund. They'll be showing up to an auction like this. So here's the problem, though. You are the consumer paying low power prices, and all of a sudden you're told the transmission asset is being privatized and your bill is being increased by three or four. How does that look? Uh, how is the consumer supposed to react? How are, so J how are Congress waiting? All right, go ahead. So, JB, so let me ask you what, do you, so what do you think is the likelihood of this bill coming out in its existing form, or do you think it's dead on arrival? Well, he proved us wrong before, didn't he, with uh, – the tax, the tax bill. Or even just getting elected. And you're getting elected. I mean, truthfully, we were talking about this before. There's a lot of ways to think about it. I think if the federal cap were to be raised in its current form, even by a little bit, say to 30%, that that would go perhaps a long way towards getting it passed. However, he just cut taxes. So how's that supposed to work? Exactly. That would look kind of bad. Another thought I had was that the, uh, if you want to expand the use of private activity bonds, it kind of goes against what Congress just did in the Tax Act. Uh, not with private activity bonds so much, but with the muni market in general, where they restricted it to an extent. So they're, they're, I don't think Congress is in a mood to expand the size of the muni market. 
Yeah, and to Greg's point, too, there was capacity left in there as well. The time they proposed the expansion, uh, only $11 billion of PAT bonds had been accessed versus the 15 that were available. Um, not that it's a big deal, but it just hadn't been, in, been tapped yet. Um, and also, I guess another point I wanted to mention, on, even on the con issue, is um, you know, pitting state versus state or city versus city in this battle because... Again, for the, the many municipalities covered by debt wire municipals, you know, they're, they're covering it because some of these guys don't have money on their hands. Um, major municipalities like Chicago and Hartford, and me and Greg were talking about earlier, um, lots of cities in New Jersey, you know, the, where are they gonna have the funds? But yet there's other cities that, you know, will have the funds and will have the ability to do things. So, you know, there could be a fight in Congress brewing over this. Uh, and. Honestly, what, what we're not thinking about or not saying is that it probably is in the public's good to allow this bill to pass, even in its current form. And I know I'm introducing a, a new idea there, but the point being is there's a lot of infrastructure in this country that needs help. You know, we work a few miles from this, like, you know, tunnel thing going across the Hudson River that is in really, really bad shape. And, you know, there was no mention of the Gateway Project um, for those of you not living in New York, that's the third tunnel to be built across the, uh, from New York to New Jersey. No mention of this in the bill when, honestly, it would have been a good thing because it would have been a shining example of what needs money, what's important. Um, you know, people have talked about a new recession coming if these tunnels collapse and nobody from New Jersey can come here to work in New York. Um, but that didn't help. I mean, I mean it, didn't, it wouldn't have hurt if they put it in the bill but it wasn't mentioned or singled out. So it's going to be very is there any, um In the bill, is there any disaster funding program at all? The feds in the past have done like private activity bonds for, for disasters, yeah. you know, for the Midwest, for different, you know, different areas. There's been a couple programs. Is there anything like that in there for storms? Or? You know, um, there is actually. Um, and I'm forgetting the exact language now, but there was language in the federal part of the package which expanded programs for things of what you talked about, like shelters and everything. It was in there. It, it didn't get into much specific beyond that, but it like expanded the definition of one of the programs to include this in there. That kind of language. So, JB, as this uh, progresses, uh, can you promise to come back and give us an update on your views? Uh, Paul, I'd be happy to come back anytime. I, I, I always enjoy speaking to you guys. All right, JB. Thanks again. Thank you. All right, well, let's move on to Puerto Rico. Omnipresent as always. Mary Ellen, I know you were coming from an event earlier today, and then obviously there's the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority debtor in possession hearing that's happening today. Get us caught up. So this morning I was at an event co-hosted by the Financial Times and the Puerto Rico Department of Economic Development and Commerce uh, called Puerto Rico Pathway to the Future. And Governor Roseo and the head of the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, Portela, both spoke there before going to other engagements later in the day in New York. The most interesting comment to me from um, Governor Roseo was, that he said capital coming into Puerto Rico would be good for all stakeholders when the moderator asked him if he had any messages for bondholders. This sort of deviates from what we've been seeing in the fiscal economic growth plans of stakeholders not 
of bondholders not really getting anything. So it will be interesting to see um, how that federal money ends up benefiting all stakeholders beyond, you know, a recovered Puerto Rico can pay more to bondholders someday in the future. They were totaling up the amount of disaster relief they expect, and it's $70.5 billion. About half of that is from FEMA public assistance, um, and then the remaining $35 billion is uh, two-thirds private insurance, one-third federal supplemental, and then a small portion individual assistance. So that'll be pretty interesting to see how that gets distributed. Um, Garcia... Or, Wow, I mentioned the former governor. Sorry about that. The current governor, Roseo, left to meet with the Financial Oversight and Management Board, which has been working on, as you know, these fiscal economic growth plans. And then uh, Portela left to go talk in court regarding the debtor in possession financing for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. Um, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority said that it could begin shutting down services as soon as tomorrow without a loan today in court, and they are sort of considering between two different loans. One is from the government of Puerto Rico, which has been tossed around for much longer. It has a lower interest rate and a longer maturity. It's about $1.3 billion from the Commonwealth to PREPA, whereas the PREPA bondholders are offering now a competing loan of $534 million. So um, we will see which one Judge Laura Taylor Swain today is having a hearing on it and will apparently have to make some sort of decision or else people might be without power. One of the interesting things to juxtapose, this morning at the conference there were people talking about um, Bitcoin and other things like that. And Bitcoin, as people probably know, is a very power-intensive process. So it was interesting to me that at the same time that these people are sitting in Midtown New York discussing Bitcoin and opening more things like that in Puerto Rico, there's a hearing going on, I mean, literally, what, a 20-minute subway ride, depending on the day and the MTA, about we're going to have to start turning off power tomorrow. There are people that still don't have power. It just seemed like a disconnect. Were these panels talking about Bitcoin, or were there or just people at the conference in general? They were panelists. Yeah, I, uh, you got to stick to your knitting on these things. You got to get power back. And, and, I, and I hate to make light of the situation. That's not my, not my intent when there's so many people without power. But if PREPA has to cut back its power, my first thought when I heard that news today was, how will anybody know? You know, the Virgin Islands has had all its power back now for at least a couple of weeks. I don't understand what the, what the holdup is in Puerto Rico. It's, it's not the same place, obviously. But it just seems like the situation there needs a lot more attention than people are giving it. And Greg, speaking of the United States Virgin Islands, there's been some activity there recently. Get us caught up with that. There, uh, there has been some uh, some activity in terms of issuing rum bonds, rum tax bonds. But before I get to that, uh, there was there was one article that we had uh, on our website uh, that was the source of which was the Virgin Islands Daily News, and this is the kind of thing that. Personally, I didn't even think of when I thought of the, of the problems that the Virgin Islands has. They're still operating under their fiscal year 17 budget, which ended September 30th of 2017. The reason they're operating under that budget and not, and not under a new budget for the fiscal year ending September 30th, 18, 
is that the hurricanes interrupted the budget process. So as a result, the 2017 budget, which is continuing, doesn't include the cuts that they intended to make in the 2018 budget. So by dint of all that, they're already overspending in 2018. So the hurricanes caused a lot more problems than uh, are immediately evident to, to people who follow these situations. Uh, I didn't see anything in the article that they're going to to remedy the, the problem of, of the new budget, but the longer this goes on, the further they're going to be in the hole because they're not making the cuts they had planned to make. Now, regarding the rum tax, um, part of the story is that their receipts of rum tax dropped by almost $16 million year over year in the first quarter of fiscal year 18 compared to the first quarter of fiscal year 17. Regardless of that, they are planning a bond issue backed by those revenues that, that uh, is related to their issuance of or receipt of community disaster loans from the federal government. The federal government originally wanted the VI to issue bonds backed by the gross receipts tax, which is probably uh, a more predictable uh, source of revenues and, and a more traditional source of revenues. But the Virgin Islands could not pass the additional bonds test under the indenture. And for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the term additional bonds test, it's basically a test that you uh, have to pass in order to show that you're going to be able to pay off the new debt service coming up as well as the debt you've already issued. So as a result, they're doing uh, planning $211 million in uh, in rum tax, in bonds backed by a rum tax. So uh, that's the big news coming from the Virgin Islands. All right, thanks, Greg. Let's keep it moving. Mary Ellen, tell us a bit more about what's been happening with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and their tobacco bonds. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania was able to land a $1.5 billion tobacco deal after delaying it. They had expected to price um, some tobacco bonds on January 31st. Uh, with the delay, they managed to get some slightly better pricing. The deal tightened up nicely between um, earlier in the week and when it finally did price, and it also grew from the initial expected pricing in January. Um, the delay wasn't intended to get better pricing or expand the size of the deal. The measure that allowed the state to issue these tobacco bonds if you know about tobacco bonds, you know most people did this, what, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, the measure that allowed Pennsylvania to do that also included a change in how fireworks are issued, or how fireworks are sold. And there was some litigation surrounding that, and there were concerns that depending on how that shook out, the state might lose the ability to issue tobacco bonds. And they worked through that. And... Um, who are able to put those bonds into the market. I heard that deal right. was way oversubscribed. Yeah, they upped the size. We were we were following it, and it was interesting to just watch it grow and get tighter, even as the MMD curve tightened. So what was the final size of the issue? Uh, $1.5 billion. Okay. Very interesting. So, Greg, tell us about what's been happening and Kaylin, since you wrote the story, <laughs> why don't you also chime in about what's been happening with Detroit Public Schools? Detroit Public Schools, which is the old school district in 
in the Detroit area. What happened was that there was a, a new school district created in order to operate the schools. The old district still exists. Its only function is to pay off the then, then existing bonds and other, and other debt of, of the uh, old school district, the legacy debt, call it that. So what, Dep what DPS, Detroit Public Schools, did was they refinanced a loan that they, uh, that they had outstanding to the Michigan School Loan Revolving Fund. The, uh, the loan amount was, uh, the new issue amount, excuse me, is $291 million. That's through a private placement with Bank of America. And the proceeds were used to pay off its state loan fund, its state fund loan, I should say. Uh, unfortunately, they're probably going to have to borrow again from the state loan fund because they still won't have the property tax millage that's sufficient to pay off principal and interest on, on the new debt. But Caitlin, what did I miss on that? Nothing. I mean, I think that, you know, from, from the Michigan Finance Authority people I talked to, they're the conduit. Um, this is a deal done for savings that they were able to get a better rate with the B of A private placement than they did on the um, outstanding state loan revolving fund loan. <laughs> and um, that uh, some other districts have sort of done it, but this was, I think DPS probably has the most amount of, uh, probably had the most, the largest loan outstanding. Um, you know, they're the biggest district in the state. And so they have probably take up this, the largest piece of the state um, revolving fund, which is a very big program, and a lot of districts rely on it to help them make up um, shortfalls in their debt service. But yeah, like like you said, they're going to probably have to come back, even though they just did this deal in September, and uh, now they're going to have to come back probably by May, maybe when they have their principal and interest. They'll probably be able to cover their interest, but when they need to do their principal and interest, they're going to have to go back because that millage is going to fall short on their unlimited tax geos. And the state is uh, was behind this transaction in the sense that the Michigan Finance Authority was the conduit issuer for uh, Detroit Public Schools. So this is all done with the state's blessings. Yeah. Well, all right. Why don't we close it out with Caitlin? Caitlin, once again, thank you for joining us. Now you're based out of Chicago, but earlier this week you had the opportunity to go down to the Lone Star State. Uh, to attend the Bond Buyer Texas Conference. And what were the big takeaways? I mean, obviously, there's Hurricane Harvey, and what was the discussion about that? But what were the, the other big takeaways that you got from attending? Well, the big takeaway, I think, um, for both the state and the locals is that, that everybody recovered, that 2017 was a year of recovering. 2015 and 16, the state saw a lot of struggles related to um, very low the oil price collapse, and um, so oil prices have since stabilized and have even gone up. I think they're probably around sixty dollars a barrel, and then at the same time, drilling prices have gone down. So that has sparked some economic activity, and the state is um, saw real positive job growth and economic growth in 2017. Once again, probably in the top five of the even higher in the country. And uh, they're poised, they're expected to continue um, that through 2018 and 2019, depending on what happens with oil prices. 
So that was a big takeaway. And, and even the Houston area, which saw the biggest hit, they saw a major decline in 15 and 16 um, in job growth. And, and the Permian Basin and other oil countries, uh, even they, they've really kind of rebounded. In fact, some of the problems they're having now, along with Austin and Dallas, which, were, which didn't see much of a decline, um, continued their strong growth. They're all kind of having the same problem, which is a search for labor so that they can, they can find enough workers to continue to expand as much as they want to. So that's that. And, you know, other challenges that always come along with growth, like infrastructure, especially transportation. Everybody complains about, you know, the traffic in Austin and the K-12. I can't remember the number, but it's, I think it's 800,000 new kids a year are moving to the state into the K-12 system. So, and this, and the state is going to, it's a kind of in a very, early stages of a big revamp of its um, K-12 funding formula, which is real controversial, has been for years, has gone to the, Supreme, the state Supreme Court a couple times. So they're going to try to tackle that probably in 2019. The legislature uh, is only in session every other year, so they'll come back in 2019. And But meanwhile, they've got a commission together this year that's going to take it on. They're really going to try to revamp that um, that school funding system. So, what about uh, Hurricane Harvey in Houston? Did that come up at all? Yeah, Hurricane Harvey. There was a couple that definitely came up in a lot of the presentations, and um, I mean, I would say that people, in some ways, were even using it as an index for how healthy the state was. That it was able to recover. Um, that, you know, that for example, one Bank of America banker was saying that right afterwards they called all their clients, the cities and the and the counties and, and the mud districts, whoever along the coast that were really hit, to see if anybody needed kind of a loan to get through, and nobody did. So it was sort of showing that people had um, enough liquidity. You know, there were technical problems, like people couldn't get to the bank to make the bond payment. You would see that occasionally, some technical defaults that they were two or three days late. But generally, people had, were, had enough reserves to be able to make it through that. I think that the thing with Harvey, there's a couple things. One is that um, it actually, you know, sparked a huge increase, double-digit increase in sales tax revenue, which is the state's main 60% roughly of its tax base is sales tax. So it sparked a big increase the last three months. has seen almost 11% increase, and uh, that's because everybody's buying everything as they rebuild, and, and it's also sparked a lot of economic activity in those areas where there's rebuilding. So it's had that impact. But then, you know, I think also it's going to take a while, especially with the, with the, with the municipal utility districts. People don't quite know yet. Um, the assessed value stuff is going to start coming in later this year and later 2018. So, so the long-term effect of how, how it impacted reserves and how it's going to impact assessed value might take a, a little while. Rating agencies are watching it. That's interesting. One other thing with Hurricane Harvey, sorry, man, was uh, just with, there was a lot of discussion right after Hurricane Harvey around that they had built on areas that were floodplains and, you know, they really need to rethink that. So what's the idea? Is the idea that they're going to rebuild stronger for the next hurricane? Or, I mean, what's been the assessment of the federal response around this? I think that one of the panels had the city's chief resilience officer, resiliency, resilience officer, and um, 
he, I, I'm trying to remember the mayor, the, the administration, the Houston administration's position is like, they have some motto like, we're not going to build for failure, or we're going to build for the future or something. And what they want to do is they want to, well, first of all, they want everybody to buy flood insurance. That's like, they just want every homeowner to have flood insurance. But they want to rebuild in such a way that, um, since this is the third kind of big flood they've had or major incident they've had in the last four years, they want to rebuild in a way that's going to stop that. So they want to build, for example, huge reservoirs, which is, I think those are $3 billion. And, and they want to consolidate at the same time, instead of rebuilding the water treatment plants <clears throat> that were uh, destroyed, they want to consolidate them and build, you know, better ones and smarter ones. So the problem with that is, and they say investors want to see that, that investors want to know that they're preparing themselves um, for, you know, for future storms and that, you know, rating agencies, we already know Moody's is starting to rate um, based on some climate change criteria, you know, for liquidity and other criteria. The problem is that Houston's trying to negotiate with FEMA and with the feds and the fed, the federal response, according to the chief resilience officer is, is lagging a little bit. They're not, they're not used to that process. Their process is just, you know, sort of, I think, assess the facility that was destroyed and, um, and reimburse for that. Not necessarily, okay, we don't want the reimbursement for that. You want to rebuild in a smarter way that's more proactive. So I think they're in the midst of a lot of negotiations, which are going to take a while um, with the feds to try to, to try to, and with the state, to try to build in a way that will help protect them in the future. Okay. And was there anything else on the legislative level in terms of, like, with property? I know property tax is always a big issue. Was there anything around that? Yeah, um, property tax is always a big issue because the state doesn't have income tax. And so, first of all, one interesting thing is because it doesn't have income tax, you know, the revenue estimators don't think that the federal tax reform is going to have too much of an impact on them in, t in terms of the SALT um, deductions. But it, it probably will on the property tax side, so that, that's a little uncertain. Revenue estimates are changing as a result, but others think that it will. Um, so, yeah, property tax is a big issue, funds the K-12 system, and is a big source of money. So the Governor Abbott has already said one of his main campaign pieces is to uh, help implement, I think it's a 2.5% property, property revenue cap every year. So a government, uh, you know, can't grow above that. Houston operates under a similar cap, which their voters authorized, I think, maybe 10 years ago. The administration's trying to get rid of it. Um, in fact, it helped drive some of their downgrades last year, that revenue cap. But it sounds like they want to do it statewide, and that would cramp borrowing, um, according to the public finance guys there. And then also, um, along with that, there would have to be a three-fourths voter approval of any new borrowing. So those are some init uh, uh, legislative initiatives that everybody thinks are going to come up in 2019 and possibly um, have a good chance of passing just sort of because of the, the zeitgeist down there. Yeah, that's interesting. Just not just what's going on with property taxes, but just given that we had these hurricanes in Texas, we also had them in Florida as well. Um, as well as the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico to see how each area goes about the rebuilding process and this whole idea of rebuilding stronger and whether or not you believe in climate change. There's certainly something going on here. So it'll be interesting to see how everybody approaches this and, and how each area rebuilds. But 
Thank you, Caitlin, Greg, Mary Ellen, JB, and Andrew. And we'll talk to you guys next week on our latest edition of the Muni Lowdown. Take care.